Hey, I'm Steph, and this is Not Today. Hello, and welcome. How are you doing? I can say with confidence that I am doing better than Alex. I really wanted Alex to be on this episode, but he unfortunately is sitting in the emergency room. He's okay, but he is waiting to hear if he has appendicitis or not, which really sucks. Um, I offered to sit with him in the emergency room. He told me to go home. There was no need for me to sit and wait for him. But if he does have appendicitis, I am on standby to go back and obviously be with him at the hospital because I'm going to do that anyway. Hopefully that won't happen, but until something happens, I will be sitting here doing something, and that something is recording this episode. So here we are. (laughs) It's been a day. It's been a weird day. It's been a weird few days, but we are trudging through, and sometimes it's just how it goes. You get a curveball, and you catch it? I don't know. What's the right saying here? (laughs) You dodge it? No, it's baseball. You catch it? I don't know. You hit it? You do something with a curveball. We're just trying to do our best is what I'm getting at. Anyway, this is going to be a really good episode. Um, It's a little bit different than what we usually go for over here. There is a survivor, obviously, but it's a bit of a mystery. We've got a bit of a mystery on our hands, and I'm excited to talk about it because we've got a lot to talk about. There's a lot of questions in this story and not a lot of answers, unfortunately, but sometimes we need a little mystery in our lives. And with that said, we're going to be talking about Stephen Kubaki today. And for those of you who don't know, Stephen Kubaki is a man who went missing for 14 and a half months, was presumed dead, and then reappeared with no knowledge of where he had been and how he ended up where he was found. So that's really interesting. So why don't we just get into it? Stephen Kubaki grew up in South Deerfield, Massachusetts with his father, John, his mother, Irene, and his brother, John Jr. From a very early age, it became apparent that Stephen was very gifted and had quite an intellect. He was granted a full scholarship to a prep school called Deerfield Academy, which was a very prestigious school. According to Stephen, it was the kind of place that had multiple clay tennis courts, Olympic-sized pools, multiple fields for every kind of sport, a planetarium, ice hockey rinks, and most of the kids who went there were very, very rich, which is unsurprising. But Stephen was granted admission because he was just a smarty pants. So that's pretty impressive. While he attended Deerfield Academy, he participated in a bunch of extracurricular activities, including cross-country skiing and mountain climbing. After graduating from Deerfield, Stephen left home to attend Hope College. Hope College is a little liberal arts college in Holland, Michigan, which is on the far west side of the state and is right off of Lake Michigan. And if Alex were here, he would say, shout out, because we love Michigan. We're also in it. Stephen changed his major up a bunch, as many college students do, but he studied the German language pre-med and history along the way. One of Stephen's professors and advisor at Hope College, G.L. Penrose, said that Stephen was very intense, but very bright. 
He was intellectually engaged in a number of things and was very intensely involved. He was not your average student in terms of intellect. He is much brighter. It seems like the only thing anyone ever has to say about Stephen is that he is so smart. So that's great for Stephen. Congrats on the big brain. Stephen lived off campus and in his free time played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons, which may have contributed to some of his peers believing Stephen was a little weird. I think D&D can be quite fun, but to an outsider, I can understand how that could be quite weird. And apparently the people who Stephen was hanging out with were a bit odd, and we'll talk about that later. But while at Hope College, he kept up skiing and would regularly do so around the frozen shores of Lake Michigan. Around 1976 and 1977, Stephen traveled abroad to the University of Freiburg in Germany to study and teach English. And while there, Stephen met a woman, and the two of them had started a relationship. And apparently, there was a rumor that this woman was one of the professors at the university, which is a scandal and also hot, but only hot because he was of age. If he was underage, that'd be disgusting. But He's clearly an adult, so we love a scandalous hot relationship, so slay for Stephen. But during the 18 months he was over there, Stephen kept up his skiing. Like I said, he also regularly ran and also climbed mountains. He was a very active man. By 1978, at 23 years old, Stephen returned to Hope College in Michigan. He and his girlfriend parted ways at that time, as did his parents, who separated around that time. He began writing for the school newspaper. He was also only nine credits away from graduating in February of that year, and even had a job at the Holland Sentinel newspaper lined up for after he graduated. So things were looking pretty good for Stephen. I don't know many people who had jobs lined up before they graduated, so that's pretty proactive of him. In January of 1978, Holland, Michigan had been hit by a terrible blizzard, which was later known as the Great Blizzard of 1978. During the 78 event, the National Weather Service said snowfall amounts included 30 inches in Muskegon and just over 19 inches in Grand Rapids and Lansing, which are all places in Michigan for those of you who don't know. But that is a butt ton of snow. 30 inches? I do understand why that was known as the Great Blizzard of 1978. That is insane. About a month later, on February 18, 1978, it was, of course, still very cold, and there was still a lot of snow on the ground, because that stuff doesn't melt very fast. But that day, Stephen Kubaki told his roommates that he intended to go on a cross-country skiing trip, which was something that he often did. And although so many people wouldn't be caught dead out in those kinds of conditions, it was perfect for Stephen's favorite hobby. So when Stephen left that day, his roommates didn't think twice about it. His route was a roughly six-mile distance from Holland to a beach on Lake Michigan, which at the time had been frozen over. Although what was different about that day was Stephen would not be returning home as he normally did. When he didn't return home, Stephen Kubaki had been reported missing by his roommate. But at the time, police didn't do anything about it. The police basically shrugged their shoulders and said, well, he's 23, so he may have just gone somewhere without telling you guys. We're not going to go looking for a 23-year-old. Sorry. It wasn't until two days later, that Monday, 
when a few men on snowmobiles had come across something odd on the shore of Lake Michigan in Sagatuck Dune State Park. They spotted a pair of skis with a backpack sitting on top of them, and on either side of the skis and backpack were ski poles stuck in the snow, standing upright. It looked very purposely placed, which was strange. And if that wasn't odd enough, they also spotted a set of footprints from the backpack and out onto the frozen lake. But there was no set of tracks coming back. So this set of footprints just went out onto the lake and then stopped. The men followed the tracks out onto the ice some 300 yards, but soon turned back and called the police because the conditions out on the lake were pretty dangerous. And they were like, yeah, I'm not going to risk this because, you know, they want to live and rightfully so. So they were like, let's just call the police. Once the police arrived, they figured out who these abandoned skis and backpack belonged to pretty quickly. One of the skis had the initial SRK, and on the inside of the backpack, they found a dentist bill for Stephen Kubaki from February 3rd, which confirmed that this was Stephen's gear. Also, inside the bag was a pair of black insulated gloves, a brown bag containing a lunch, some rolled-up plastic bags, a plastic canteen, a cigar box containing miscellaneous items, a notebook with loose sheets of writing paper, college handout material, and a drawing pad. The snowmobilers told police when they had gone out onto the ice following the tracks, they had passed the first wave of ice on the lake, but stopped when they encountered a second wave of ice because they became worried they would fall through thin ice or into a crevice. So they decided to turn back. Something notable about Great Lake ice is that it's not the same as a local pond freezing over. The wave action of these lakes creates 30 to 40 foot tall ice waves that have dangerous cracks and crevices that can open up at random times. And the frozen lake can create some pretty incredible landscapes. It can create massive shards of ice all over the ground, and it's really interesting to look at, but also incredibly dangerous to be on. And that may have been why there was no sign of Stephen falling through the ice. That's what they believed at first. Since his footsteps had led out onto the lake and then just stopped, authorities believed the ice could have shifted, creating an opening, which meant it would be possible for Stephen to fall through a thin patch, and then that was it. He drowned under the ice. So police immediately theorized the obvious. Stephen had walked out onto the ice, walked along a thin patch, fell through, the ice probably closed back up over him, and he was most likely dead somewhere in the water. The trooper noted the lake ice appeared to be very rough, and some of the ice waves were about 30 to 40 feet high and covered in snow. 30 to 40 feet high ice waves. That's massive. It must look like another world out there. Is this like a thing that people do? Does anyone just go out on frozen Great Lakes and just walk around? Or is this like a strange thing that Stephen did? If you do that, send me an email and let me know, because that's... I'm sure someone has a story about that. Because police had this jumping off point, they figured it was time to start the search. Police first checked for Kubaki at his home and learned that nobody had seen him. A witness who was interviewed stated that the last time they had seen Stephen was in downtown Holland. Stephen had told this person he was going skiing, but nothing was out of the ordinary. According to Mark, Stephen's roommate, Stephen enjoyed walking out onto the ice. And he had seen Stephen do it. 
But according to Stephen's brother, John, if Stephen were to do something like that, he would never leave his backpack behind. He took his backpack with him everywhere since it contained his compass and other essential items. Even if he had left his skis, his brother said Stephen always kept his backpack on. So it didn't make a ton of sense for Stephen to have walked out onto the ice without his gear. But that's what it looked like happened. Stephen's roommate had also told police he believed Stephen fell through the ice, but it would not surprise him if he had taken off to somewhere unknown and made it look like he had fallen through the ice. He was completely capable of doing that. He then went on to say that he was sure this wasn't the case, because if he did do something like that, Stephen would have told him beforehand. He then told police about a few times when Stephen left suddenly to travel, but both times he consulted his roommate first, who then gave Stephen money before he left. And that's pretty interesting. He didn't necessarily have to tell the roommate he was leaving. This roommate isn't Stephen's mother, but if he did leave without telling anyone, he would have to walk backwards over his footprints on the ice for about 300 yards, which would have been a very deliberate thing to do. He would basically be making it look like he died. And for what? That's the big question. If he did that, what's the reason? Why are you making yourself vanish like that? Because it's one thing to have tracks that walk away and then no one can find you, but your footprints go out into the middle of the lake and it looked like you literally vanished into thin air. So that's a big mystery to fabricate if that's what he did. Troopers then interviewed a woman whose name was redacted from reports, but she had said the last time she saw Stephen was the previous Friday evening. He had been in good spirits and was telling her about the coming week's plans. So because of that, she felt like he must have fallen through the ice and did not intentionally disappear. Because if he had been planning on intentionally disappearing, why would he be in such good spirits? Why would he be talking about his plans for the coming weeks. Like, it's just weird behavior to have plans like that. And that's what the police believed as well. Police told reporters that, quote, there's a very strong current in the area and much of the ice is broken and piled up. We're fearing the worst right now. He probably went through the ice on Lake Michigan. The only problem was there was no body. So they couldn't say for certain that Stephen had died under the ice. So the search continued. They brought out snowmobiles, dogs, a helicopter, and an airplane to search a three-square-mile area around the tracks. Which isn't huge, but the area was very intense, so they figured it was big enough. His parents were informed immediately, which resulted in them flying in from Massachusetts. His father joined in on the search, doing whatever he could to find Stephen. John Kubaki Sr., didn't believe his son was dead, since Stephen was, according to him, an expert outdoorsman. He was involved both on the ground and in the air trying to find his son. But by the 22nd, when nothing had been found, the Coast Guard and the state police had decided it was about time to call off the search. They couldn't keep devoting resources to this, when in reality, it seems like he was gone. Stephen's parents pleaded with the state governor to keep the search going, so they were given a few additional days, but still nothing turned up. The search then restarted once the ice on Lake Michigan melted, since they hoped that a body would turn up along the shoreline. But again, the search turned up absolutely nothing. Stephen's mother Irene called state police on March 6th to report a family friend who had been receiving phone calls asking them to call Stephen at a specified number. 
But when they tried calling that number, they learned that it had been disconnected as of September of 1977. Irene stated she had received a call from Stephen in 1977 from that same number, so she wanted police to find out who was making those phone calls. Police contacted the phone company who confirmed the number had been disconnected and then reassigned to a new unnamed person. But other than that, they didn't know who was making these calls. Officers asked around to people at Hope College if they knew who would be making these calls. And they were told that Stephen's group of friends were supposedly very weird. And also, he hung around with like 20 different kids who were, quote, not the average type of student, meaning it really could have been anyone in that group. A Holland police officer even confirmed that he knew the group Stephen hung around with, and they were odd. So I'm not entirely sure what that means, but they weren't too concerned about this whole phone call thing. But that's a pretty sinister thing to do to harass a family member of a missing person and tell them to call Steven at some random number that used to be his? Even if you're weird, you gotta be pretty messed up to be doing something like that. Especially if you were ever a person who called Steven your friend. Like, who would ever do something like that? But I guess nothing really came of those phone calls and they just chalked it up to the quote-unquote weird kids that he hung out with, so... That's just another question mark in this case of many question marks. Almost everyone but his family had been under the assumption that Stephen had walked out onto the ice, fallen through, and tragically died. Later that June, Hope College even awarded Stephen an honorary history degree in absentia since he hadn't finished the course, and the degree was accepted by his parents. But state police were so at a loss with this whole thing that they even sent his dental records to Chicago authorities to see if he had been among the victims discovered in the home of serial killer John Wayne Gacy, since that was happening at the same time as this as well. He wasn't one of Gacy's victims, but the fact that Gacy was even a part of this at all just adds to how unbelievable this whole case is. And around that time is when Stephen's parents started to believe that there could have been some foul play involved as well. I wonder if it's because the police were like, hey, is he a part of John Wayne Gacy's whole thing? But so Stephen's parents hired Theo Grievers, who was part of an international private detective service, to assist in helping them find Stephen. And they actually ended up spending like thousands of dollars in trying to find him, which makes sense. It was their son, so you're going to do whatever you can to find him. But they did not spare anything to try to find him. Theo Grievers went to state police and told them that he had spoken to Stephen's brother, John, who had told him that he believed Stephen hadn't drowned, but that he had left the area and possibly went to Germany. If he had, he believed his brother would have flown Icelandic Air out of Chicago. But when officers contacted Icelandic Air, they confirmed that no, Stephen Kubaki had not flown with them between February 17th and the 21st. So that unfortunately went nowhere. So with nothing panning out, the police told Stephen's parents that he had drowned and he was gone. They didn't want to believe it, but they had no other options at that point. He had vanished. But still, his family had never declared Stephen legally dead since he was never found, because they were still holding out hope. And it turned out that they were right, because over a year later, on May 5th, 1979, 
A man woke up in a meadow outside of Pittsfield, Massachusetts. He didn't know where he was, how he got there. He didn't recognize the clothes he had on, including a shirt from a marathon that had taken place in Wisconsin, and he found a backpack lying nearby. Inside the backpack was new clothes, equipment, glasses, $40 in cash, as well as maps to a number of different places, including San Francisco, Sacramento, Chicago, Utah, and Reno, Nevada. And he figured that these things must be his, but he had no memory of how he acquired them. So he picked up this random backpack and wandered for a while until he made it into the town of Pittsfield. And he asked the first person he saw where he was, and was told that he was in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. So he bought a local newspaper, and when he saw the date on the newspaper, a slew of memories came flooding back to him. He was Stephen Kubaki, and the last thing he remembered before then was cold darkness and being afraid on the ice of the frozen Lake Michigan. He had remembered the strange shapes in the ice, and that he had walked further out than ever before and had lost his way. He then realized that more than a year had elapsed since the moment on the ice, but he had no idea where he had been or what had happened since then. He sat down on a bench across the street from a Friendly's restaurant and contemplated what could have happened for hours. He decided against calling his parents, since he worried what the news would do to them. Instead, He realized that his aunt, June Bozek, lived only 20 miles from where he was in the town of Great Barrington. So the only thing left for him to do was to start walking in that direction. He held out his thumb to every car that passed by, hoping someone would pick him up and shorten the walk. And eventually, a man did pick him up, and the two began driving to Great Barrington. And later that night, he was dropped off in downtown Great Barrington. If this is true... Could you actually imagine being Stephen, waking up in a field, in clothes you don't recognize, with a backpack you don't recognize, with maps from all over the country, and you have to ask some random person where you are, and then you find a newspaper and a year has gone by? What the hell? We'll get into all the theories later, so let's just keep going for now, but this is wild. Since he was still a distance from his aunt's house, he walked around for a while in downtown Great Barrington, kind of anxious to reconnect with his family again. And I don't blame him because it's been a year and you are, you have been nowhere. Well, I mean, where have you been? I guess he didn't know, according to him, but with nothing left to do, Stephen finally made it to his aunt's house and knocked on the door. At the time, June Bozek had been at her neighbor's house when she saw a man approaching her door. And eventually she realized that it was Stephen and couldn't believe her eyes. She said to her neighbor, oh my God, that's my nephew, before running to her home to meet Stephen. It was as if she had seen a ghost. He was presumed dead by most people. So not long at all after that, June called Stephen's parents and Stephen even came onto the line to let them know that he was in fact alive and safe. He was soon reunited with his father in Massachusetts, which was, of course, very emotional. There were cameras there to catch the moment, and in the photos, Stephen can even be seen wearing the backpack that he woke up with. 
It was a media circus. Everyone wanted to know how a man could vanish for 14 and a half months and then turn up 700 miles from the point where he disappeared with no memory of what happened. Stephen's mother told reporters she didn't have an explanation for her son's disappearance and she didn't need one because he was home now. She said it's really just grand. The world is a great place again. Stephen's father said, I'm very happy. I just don't know what to say, but I'm not pressing him for details. I can't imagine the hell those parents went through with all that uncertainty, but truly they had gotten the best possible outcome and no one could explain it. It seemed as if Stephen should know where he was, but according to him, he had no memory. And I kind of understand why these parents aren't pressing him for it, because if he had made himself disappear, then pressing him for information could potentially lead to him disappearing again. And they obviously didn't want that to happen. So I get it. The incident caused speculation from psychologists as to the cause of Stephen's amnesia. But no one could give a genuine diagnosis without meeting him, and he wouldn't really meet with anyone. Some psychologists who were contacted by reporters for answers threw out theories like memory loss due to emotional stress, depression, or a problem Stephen was trying to flee from. And other psychologists expressed doubt that such a great loss of memory could have even occurred at all. According to Stephen, he wasn't under any stress and didn't have any major problems at the time he disappeared. He was quoted saying, I don't feel there was anything, but that doesn't mean anything. That's the problem. I may have been under emotional stress, but I can't remember it. It may be a part of the repression. He also defended himself saying, my father was going to sign over our house to me. I had three courses at school and no trouble. I left a romance in Germany. There was no trouble with girls. I had a job lined up with the Holland Centennial newspaper, meaning things were really good for Stephen at the time of his disappearance, which made everything even more odd. It kind of debunked the theory that he had all this emotional stress that he was dealing with and trying to flee from because he really didn't. He had things kind of really sweet. He had a job lined up. He was going to have a house. He didn't have any romantic turmoil going on. He was just a dude who played Dungeons and Dragons and liked to cross-country ski from what it looked like. And according to him, that's what his life was. He was like, yeah, I was kicking it. I don't know. <laughs> it's just weird. Of course, everyone wanted an interview with Stephen, and reporters continually bothered him, which was when Stephen took his father's car and disappeared again. But this time, it was to get away from unwanted attention. And that worked. Eventually, the news moved on to other, fresher topics, and Stephen Kubaki's bizarre disappearance and reappearance faded into the background. Stephen Kubaki has given very few interviews, and almost none in the few months following his return, but this is what he has said to reporters. He said, quote, I was lying on the grass in a meadow when I woke up Saturday morning. I didn't know where I was. I was wearing clothes that weren't mine. I started going through a pack that I assumed was mine, and I found maps. I would guess I was hitchhiking. I didn't know what the date was until I walked into town and got a newspaper. He also said he had, quote, really vague feelings. I have some running shoes. I feel like I've done a lot of running. I also have a marathon t-shirt from Wisconsin. I don't know how I got it. I was confused by all the hugging and kissing. I couldn't feel like I'd been gone that long, but I'm beginning to understand. I'm amazed learning about all the money they spent looking for me and about graduating. 
I don't know what I'll do now. I've got a lot to think about. I'll try to find out where I was and what I did. My parents just never believed I was dead. It's just grand to be home. And he said, the only thing I can think of is what mountain climbers suffer from loss of body heat and exhaustion. The combination can result in temporary loss of memory. So he's like, I don't know what happened. Maybe I just was exhausted. But if you're exhausted, you're not going to lose your memory for an entire year. But he does address the marathon t-shirt. He's like, yeah, I feel like I did a lot of running and I even have running shoes on. So he possibly ran a marathon. And we're going to talk about that more too. But what a weird thing. Like, yeah, this could be fake. It could all be fake. But I really want to believe it's real, right? Like, I want to believe that this man has no memory of what happened. And he truly just woke up in a field one day and was like, what the actual hell is going on? I mean, that would be, okay, that would be traumatic. So I don't necessarily wish that on someone. But isn't this bonkers? I mean, it would be less insane if he actually planned all of this and it was all fake that would be less fun. You know what I mean? I want it to be real. So let's keep going. Many newspapers reported that Stephen said he would definitely not see a psychiatrist about the situation. However, a day or so after that initial interview, Stephen talked to reporters again and had changed his mind about that. He said, quote, I want to get to the bottom of this. I'll consider undergoing hypnosis, but not right now. I want to investigate this and try to jar my own memory. If that doesn't work out, I'll probably see some kind of psychiatrist. I felt like it was the Twilight Zone or some science fiction where all of a sudden people are misplaced in a strange land. And yeah, this is very much like an episode of the Twilight Zone. In June of 1979, Kubaki changed his mind once again when the Boston Globe interviewed him at his father's home. He said he remembered no more now than he did when he quote-unquote awoke, but that he is not concerned about it. He now had no interest in tracing that year he lost from his life, and the article also stated that Stephen was running six miles a day and was trying to put together a book of poetry and was preparing to return to college for a legitimate degree. So he went from saying, yeah, I want to get to the bottom of this, to being like, actually, I don't care at all, and I'm just going to go run and write some poetry. He's having a crisis, is what it seems like. That seems like a crisis. And I don't fault him for that, to be honest. If all of this is true, he's allowed to go through a crisis <laughs> and just write some poetry for a little while. But it was a bit odd, because in only a month, Stephen went from being hell-bent on figuring out what happened to him to not caring at all. So I do have some interesting points, and there's quite a bit of questions that are going to be brought forward and not a lot of answers. But let's talk about it. So an interesting point was brought forward in an article by a man named Fonny Blacklad. He said that Sergeant Charles Keebler of the Michigan State Police stated that medical records and police records documented the fact that Stephen Kubaki had been injured in the head during a ski accident on the shores of Lake Michigan and had been hospitalized and released from the hospital, supposedly in satisfactory condition. Mr. Ladd was seemingly insinuating that Stephen's whole ordeal could be explained by a head injury. But how Mr. Ladd got this information is unknown, since there is no mention of a head injury in any of the police reports, and Sergeant Keebler had gone on record with a bunch of reporters saying he believed Kubaki had fallen through the ice and drowned. 
And it's unknown if Mr. Ladd had actually interviewed Sergeant Keebler for that information, which meant there was really nothing corroborating this head injury theory. So it very well could have been made up because there was really nothing concrete saying that this was real information, except for this article from this random man. Also, another reporter had interviewed Stephen's doctor, who had never shared any of Stephen's medical history. But he did say that Stephen was just a regular guy. It was unbelievable. And he was glad Stephen was back. And he's never had anything like this happen to him. So it's really unknown where this Mr. Ladd got this head injury from. Um, It's possible he just made it up. Although it's also possible that he didn't. And it's really medical history from Stephen Kubaki, but also that would be breaking, what, HIPAA laws to be sharing stuff like that? So I wonder if that's even legal. But anyway, that is one possible theory is that there was a head injury involved. Something else that was strange was something that happened with the man who picked up Stephen initially in Pittsfield after he had woken up in that field and began hitchhiking. The guy who picked him up was a 28-year-old divinity student at Berkshire Christian College named Ronald Curtis. Once the news of Stephen's reappearance hit the news, Ronald Curtis came forward and was like, wait a minute, I met this guy and I have some information. So when he drove Stephen from Pittsfield to Great Barrington, the two had been in the car for the 37-minute car ride together, and Stephen had never mentioned anything about amnesia, according to Ronald. In fact, Stephen said his name was Nathan and that he was from South Deerfield. He also told Ronald that he had hitchhiked from San Francisco and flown back and had taken a bus from Boston to Pittsfield. He had gone to San Francisco to learn from an Eastern religion cult and had no intention of joining. He just wanted to learn. So this is all stuff that Ronald is now saying Stephen told him on their drive. But again, we don't know if this is actually true or not. But Ronald said to reporters, quote, he was able to tell me that the bus cost $8 between Boston and Pittsfield. And he was surprised when he got here that milkshakes only cost 75 cents because they were over $1 in the Midwest and the West. And the newspaper confirmed that the bus fare between Boston and Pittsfield was, in fact, $7.75, which is just about $8. Ronald also said Stephen told him June Bozek was a friend of his, and he had some information for her regarding a mutual friend of theirs who had been missing for some time. Ronald then told the reporter, quote, I'm inclined not to believe him, but I'm not willing to make an accusation without the facts. Maybe it was amnesia causing his confusion. I feel bad for him because no matter how it turns out, he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. So this is all very confusing because if this is actually true and Stephen actually got in the car with this man and told him all of this stuff and said, I flew from San Francisco to Boston and took the bus from Boston to Pittsfield and it cost $8 and I was so shocked about the milkshakes and all this stuff. That's a lot of very specific information and that would completely contradict Stephen not remembering things. But Kubaki's response to this was that he didn't remember saying anything like that to 
the driver that picked him up. He also said that he wasn't denying that he may have. But according to Stephen, his driver said he knew June Bozek and knew that she had moved and where she was. But other than that, the rest of their conversation doesn't make any sense and he doesn't remember it. But he also said he wasn't even sure if it was Ronald that picked him up. It could have been him, but he wasn't sure. So according to Stephen, he's like, I could have said all of this. I maybe didn't. I'm not even sure if it actually was Ronald or not. So he's really playing this amnesia thing very hard. If he's lying, he's saying, hey, I could have said all of this, but I don't remember any of it. But again, that doesn't make a ton of sense because at this point, he is claiming that he has, you know, woken up from, I guess, whatever trance-like state he must have been in for a year. But I guess if he was doing stuff for a year and he just forgot about it, maybe it would carry over through his, like, drive. I don't know. This is all very confusing if this is real. (laughs) Like, I don't don't know what to believe. But I guess that's the fun of this case, right? It's like, what, what do you actually believe? Choose your own adventure. So, like I said earlier, Stephen said he felt like he did a lot of running. And when he woke up in that field, he was wearing a shirt from a marathon in Wisconsin and even had the shoes to do it. That was a pretty easy thing to check up on, since the only marathon in Wisconsin at that time was the Pavo Nurmi Marathon. A woman named Ellen Killerin was the first to track down the list of names of people who ran the marathon in 1978. And there was a Kubaki on the list, but it wasn't Stephen Kubaki. There were also a lot of Stevens, but that didn't really mean much. It was also speculated whether Stephen had amnesia at the time or not, he most likely wouldn't have used his real name. And according to Ronald, you know, this hitchhiking driver, Stephen had said his name was Nathan. But the closest thing to Nathan on that list was a man named Nat, who was from Japan. And it was pointed out that that also seemed kind of weird, since most of the runners of this marathon were local. But of course, that's not impossible that someone from Japan was running this race. All that to be said, we'll probably never know if Stephen ran that marathon under a pseudonym or not. Something else, an article from Greenfield, Massachusetts, quoted a man named Robert Neat, who described himself as a close personal friend of Stephen and former classmate at Hope College. He described Stephen as highly intelligent. However, he was not surprised at what happened to him. He said, quote, He and two other students started an underground newspaper that was off the wall. It was very political and very anti-establishment, like something out of the 60s. He went on to say that he was in a political science class with Stephen, who regularly dominated discussions in class to the point where he would need to be dismissed from class. And about a week before he disappeared, he, quote, made a videotape during which he said he was leaving the country. He hated this country and liked Europe. And he said he believes that Stephen has been out of the country. He also said that video that Stephen made was played on television in the time after Kubaki's disappearance around the Holland, Michigan area. Stephen reportedly denied most of Robert's claims. He said he did make a video. However, it was just about his time in Germany. It wasn't as intense as he's claiming it was. So what I gather from this case is that a lot of people are saying a lot of things, but there isn't a ton that is like definitely true. And it seems like not even Stephen knew what was true at this point. And of course, because this case had so many unanswered questions, 
people are going to do what they do best, speculate. There are a few theories about what happened to Stephen, and these go all the way from he wanted to disappear, all the way to ancient aliens and wormholes. And in the grand scheme of things, Kubaki's story hasn't received a lot of media attention. It doesn't even have its own Wikipedia page, but it's popular in online communities concerned with the paranormal. One reason for this is the location of Kubaki's disappearance. He disappeared close to the southeastern boundary of the so-called Lake Michigan Triangle. And this was the first time I had ever heard of the Lake Michigan Triangle, but this is basically like a tiny Bermuda Triangle just in Michigan. I didn't even knew such a thing existed. So that's interesting. So it's a much smaller area than the better known Bermuda Triangle, but has been the site of numerous unexplained air disasters, shipwrecks, and vanishings dating back centuries. Some experts have debated about the shape and range of the triangle, and one argued that the area is not a triangle, but a rectangle or an oblong shape that encompasses most or all of Lake Michigan. (laughs) But that makes me laugh a lot because I guess they had to call it the Lake Michigan Triangle because the Lake Michigan oblong shape doesn't have as good of a ring to it. So I get that one. There are stories of ghost ships, ghost planes, heavily corroborated UFO sightings, and one particularly spine-chilling tale about a competitive sailing crew that passed through what sounds like a vortex during a practice run on a calm early summer evening. After a sudden dramatic fall of fog and, quote, wind filling the main sail from two opposing directions, Three wooden ships took on a life of their own and performed synchronized 360-degree turns with no one steering. And apparently there's more to that story, but that happened just a few months after Kubaki vanished and was still missing. Conspiracy theorists have blamed the triangle on a negative energy vortex. Energy vortexes are the idea that certain locations emit sacred, powerful, and transformational energy. Although vortexes are typically considered to promote positivity and healing, it's claimed that vortexes with negative energy also exist. These locations are purportedly sources of danger and malevolence. Others attribute the triangle's supposed vortex to a prehistoric structure under Lake Michigan, discovered by archaeologists in 2007. The site is often referred to as the North American Stonehenge. Others believe the occurrences in Lake Michigan Triangle are caused by aliens pointing to UFO sightings as evidence. And I believe if Alex were here, he would call this a bunch of woo-woo shit. And I would agree, this is very woo-woo. But these are some real theories that people have about what happened to Stephen that day. David Politis, I believe is how you say it, of Ancient Aliens, theorized Stephen may have slipped into a portal. Politis said he had spoken to theoretical physicists who told him this could be the case. He didn't say which theoretical physicists, but he said he talked to some theoretical physicists. So who actually knows if that's true or not? But this is basically the theory that Stephen fell into another dimension, kind of like Rick and Morty is what I gather. And of course, many people believe that Stephen wanted to vanish, and he did this on his own and made up the whole amnesia thing. Although Stephen denies that. Today, 
Stephen remains alive and well in the Pacific Northwest, working as a psychologist. He has a PhD and a website called stephenkubaki.com. His website has updates on his life and work. On his website, you can find articles that he has written about ideas on God and existence. And he co-wrote a book called Meta Mathematical Foundations of Existence. But the most notable thing about his website is that Stephen Kubaki will be releasing another book soon titled The Disappearance that he co-wrote with Dylan Quarles. And he claims that he now remembers what happened. And all of that will be revealed in his book that is coming out. So for decades, he refused to speak about his disappearance with reporters. But he recently gave an interview to a YouTube channel called The Missing Enigma, which was great. They didn't talk about his disappearance because that's what's going to be in the book. But the fact that he gave an interview at all was huge. Um, that channel also had a great video on Stephen's story as well, and I used that story for a good portion of the information, so shout out to them. But Stephen did say in that interview that he does believe in the multiverse theory, meaning that he believes that there are many universes or other dimensions. So we're just going to have to wait and see if he says that he fell through a wormhole or something like that in the book, because he clearly believes that that is something that is possible. You know, I don't know. I don't know what, what I believe in that, right? I mean, apparently physicists believe that to be a thing, that it's a possibility that other dimensions exist. I can't say I've done a ton of research on it. But also, I guess I believe that we don't know what's out there, right? I, I mean, I think we'd be naive to be like, yes, we as humans know everything, because that's silly. The earth is so small in the grand scheme of things. And if I think about that for too long, I will spiral. But so that's a story for another day. There are three camps of people in this story. So there are those who believe Stephen was abducted by aliens, those who believe he somehow has amnesia from the whole year he was missing, and those who believe he faked the whole thing. And what do I believe? I don't know. I mean, I think it's entirely possible he made himself disappear and he hitchhiked all over the country. But to do that, he would have had to walk backwards over his own footsteps and then make himself vanish, which I guess in the 70s wouldn't have been entirely impossible to do. I guess it would be way more difficult to do nowadays, but his face was national news for a time. So you have to think that if he was just around living his life and hitchhiking and running marathons and, you know, doing whatever, that it would be entirely possible that someone would recognize him and say something. But then again, that's also assuming that people cared enough to say anything, if even if they did recognize him. I mean, he's just a man who is around. Like, they're like, oh, that, that's the guy from the news. Like, there he is. I found him. So I don't know. It's entirely possible that that's what he did. He, I mean, he, he had a backpack with maps from all over the country. And if that hitchhiking guy, you know, Ronald, was telling the truth and Stephen does actually remember all that, then he told Ronald what he did. He said, I was in San Francisco. I flew from San Francisco. I took a bus from Boston. I, you know, know what the bus fare cost. I know what the milkshakes cost. Like all this, you know, he he ran a marathon. Like it would be entirely possible for all that to be true. But also it would be 
way more fun to believe that he fell through a wormhole. I don't know. I, I think it'd be more fun to believe he fell through a wormhole. And also, it was fun listening to him talk about the multiverse theory. And it was interesting. And hey, if aliens abducted him, I wouldn't be mad. I mean, I don't... I Let me... <laughs> let me revise that statement. I would be sad for him. I don't wish that on anyone. I don't want anyone to be abducted by aliens if that's a thing that really happens. <laughs> I don't want anyone to experience trauma if he remembers that because clearly he says he remembers what happens. But wouldn't that be a fun story? Wouldn't that be interesting? And you know what? I guess we'll just have to wait and find out. I will be reading that book. And, and I guess we'll just have to talk about it some other time. But this was a story that I had to I had to share because it's so crazy. I mean, yes, it's a man who was presumed dead and then, you know, survived, but also it's a mystery. And we love a mystery over here. At the end of the day, I love a mystery. But that is the story of Stephen Kubaki. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. I know I sure did. I found it very interesting looking into it. So I hope you found it just as interesting listening to me talk about it. But anyway, I guess with nothing really else to say about it, what's my good thing? Um, My good thing right now is that as of this moment, I haven't received news that Alex has appendicitis. I'm hoping that, that it stays that way. Um, That is my good thing as of this moment. Another good thing that isn't appendicitis related is that we have been waiting on our kitchen table and chairs that was lost in the mail for like three weeks and it finally arrived and now we have a kitchen table and chairs, which is huge because before we did not have a place to sit other than our desks, which was fine, but you know, it's different having a kitchen table and chairs. It's just, it just feels better. Um, So now we have that, but yeah. Anyways, thank you guys so much for listening. If you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nontoday underscore podcast. If you would like to check out the bonus episodes we have up, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. You have access to the bonus episodes in our $5 tier. Don't forget that. If anyone you know has a story of survival or something crazy that's happened to them and you'd like to share with us and possibly hear it on an upcoming listeners episode, send it to knowtodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast with a T on the end of podcast is a three because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah.